Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The weather is getting warmer, so it is time to say goodbye to your jackets and heavy sweaters. Hello to shorts and tees. If you are anything like me, you have this urge around this time of year to completely overhaul your wardrobe. But ideally, you want to do that without spending a fortune. Luckily, I found Quince. Now I've got a lineup of timeless pieces that keep me looking effortlessly chic year after year. They have these amazing European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts from $30, washable silk tops, timeless 14-karat gold jewelry, and honestly, my new favorite pair of summer sunglasses I got from Quince. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com noble for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash noble to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Quince dot com slash noble. Welcome to Noble Blood, a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Mankey. Listener discretion is advised. In 2017, two students at Cambridge University wrote a musical about the six wives of Henry VIII. The show began with performances at Edinburgh Fringe, and from there it went from something of an underground cult phenomenon to bona fide global hit within just a few years. And that's accounting for the COVID shutdown that hit on what was supposed to be their opening night on Broadway. The musical, Six, is staged almost like a pop concert in which the six wives of Henry VIII, Catherine of Aragon, Anne Boleyn, Jane Seymour, Catherine Howard, and Catherine Parr, don miniskirts, bustiers, heels, and boots, and belt out individual solos inspired by divas like Beyonce and Nicki Minaj. It's a loose interpretation of history. After all, the queens in real life might have had lovely singing voices, but I doubt that they could belt or dance like the actors on Broadway and the West End. But the historical spirit of each of the numbers is accurate. They're subjective but valid interpretations of the histories of the doomed queens that center their agency and their own experiences. The show is especially exciting to me because I think that any time conversations about Tudor history take the mainstream spotlight, it gets people excited about delving into the actual history. After all, people are able to enjoy infectiously catchy songs while at the same time understanding that the real Anne of Cleves never wore fishnets. I am so excited to be able to sit down virtually, with the show's two co-writers, Toby Marlowe and Lucy Moss, and talk about history, theater, and the way we talk about history in the public discourse. 
the show came about when we were in our third year of uni and the university's musical theatre society wanted to take an original musical to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And I like applied to do that with like not an idea for a show, but the kind of like criteria for the show that I thought would get me the gig of writing it and not lose the society money, which is basically uh, having a show that had famous subject matter. So people would, you know, look at it and go, like, oh, that looks that's something I recognize. Something that had pop music because um, it's the best one. <laughs> and something that played around with the form. And so like the, the songs came about in like an interesting way or like a natural way as opposed to like breaking into song because that you know, can alienate people from musicals sometimes. And also something that had a majoritively or all female cast because, you know, there were lots of conversations happening at the time like amongst our friendship group and in the media as well. And in our degrees about like, you know, representation, particularly, you know, of women in musical theatre and the kind of songs that they get and the kind of roles that they get and how often like the meaty, funny, charismatic parts are usually for boys. And so, you know, thought it'd be a good opportunity to like redress that and give our amazing, talented friends some fun songs. Anyway, they gave me the gig and they were like, okay, come up with an idea. And then I was like, okay, what's a famous group of women? And it was Six Wives of Henry VIII was the first one that came to mind. And then it was, okay, what's like a way of fitting that into an hour at the fringe with pop music in a way that the song has come about in an interesting way. And then that's where the pop ones idea came from. And then the second I came up with that, I called Lucy and I was like, I've got this wacky idea for a musical to take it to the Edinburgh Fringe. Do you want to write it with me? Um, and Lucy was like, yeah, okay. Sounds a bit crap, but <laughs> let's give it a go. What were your experiences or knowledge base when it came to The Six Wives of Henry VIII before you began writing? I'm sure in the UK, you probably learn a little bit more about it in school than we do in America. Yeah, as you say, in the UK, it's the kind of thing that you, at various points in your school career, will be kind of taught about Henry VIII and the Six Wives, and everyone will know divorce, beheaded, died, divorce, beheaded, survive, and kind of knows about Anne Boleyn being beheaded. So it's sort of like a big like cultural moment, but it's also something that I feel like you kind of learn about when you're like six, and then again when you're sort of 11, and then at some other point, and then you forget all about it by the time you're growing up. So you can only remember the kind of like the key elements of it. And then whenever someone does go, oh yeah, and then it's sort of like there was like breaking away from the Catholic Church. I was like, oh, yeah. So it's sort of stuff that people kind of like remember on some level, but it's not kind of like, you know, right at the forefront for everybody. Lots of people are massive Tudor fans, but especially for myself, I didn't really know like loads about them as individuals or I couldn't really remember exactly what their significance was. However, at the time I was studying history and I was actually looking a lot at early modern German visual culture. So kind of all the Hans Holbein stuff that's in the show was kind of what I was focusing on my degree and also kind of feminist revisionist history of that period. So I was quite familiar with the Reformation and the kind of like cultural background and the sort of historical background of that time and especially in terms of the sort of like scholarship that was happening at the time of writing in regard to that period. But it wasn't really anything to do with British history and the Queens for me. You know, each of the queens in the musical have such a distinct personality and their song is such a distinct style. Which was hardest for you to write and which was easiest? Which came most naturally? Ooh, that's a good question. With some of them, there were like parts of it that were really easy to write and then parts of it that were really hard. And I feel like maybe the song Get Down answers both of those things mm. because the verses 
that came out like the quickest that we'd ever written something. And it was so fun and enjoyable. We knew exactly what the vibe was going to be. And we were like brainstorming these stupid puns and lyrics and rhymes. And then it all like came out really, really quickly because we knew it was going to be her like bragging about her riches. Get down if you haven't listened to the musical yet, which you absolutely should because it's available for streaming and go see it if you're anywhere near New York, is the song that Anne of Cleves sings set post her divorce from Henry bragging about her life as a single woman. Yeah, yeah. And the verses are her being like, like I want to go hunting, you know, eating pheasants, sipping on meat, like all these things. And that kind of stuff was really like fun and came out really quickly. But then the choruses took us literally forever because we were like just massively overthinking it. Okay, we know, we know this message of how like Henry's rejected her and like painted her into a corner. But now he's going like, you thought I was this faded flower, but I'm impacted by the roses. But it was just taking forever. And then Lucy was revising like the library and you like, were like, Toby, Toby. You said like tricture, profile picture. And I was like, there we go. That's it. That's cracked it. it like an That's egg. it. <laughs> Literally cracked it like a goddamn egg. Um, and then from there, it would just, yeah, came up with the thing. Do you have any favorite songs? I know it might be like picking children, but do you have like a favorite deep in your heart? I think I have like favorites for different reasons. I feel like as a number and a piece of storytelling as a whole, when you see the show, Catherine Howard's song, All You Want to Do, is my favorite in terms of the synthesis of all the different departments. And also it feels like the place where the concept of it being a pop concert and there being stories told through pop songs, it feels like where that comes to fruition most because it sort of uses the repetitive structure of a pop song to kind of like mirror this sort of like cycle of abuse and change in perspective that Catherine Howard has through her life. And it also choreographically uses the visual storytelling of something like a sort of Britney Spears concert choreographically to then kind of tell this story. So it feels like that's sort of the best place where storytelling and the kind of concept of it being a pop show kind of come together. But then in terms of like story, I think Get Down is one of my faves because it's like a really positive narrative, someone who got to sort of just like succeed. And it's really fun to sort of be like, oh, you've heard about this woman as somebody who had a really bad time. Actually, the narrative is all to do with like her relationship to Henry. And when you take Henry kind of out of it, he actually wasn't as relevant to her life as maybe she was to his. You get to see a really positive narrative be told on stage. But then musically, it's like, I don't need your love is, mm. you know, when we were writing it and you kind of were like, oh, I've got this like voice memo of this thing. I was like, oh, this is my favorite song. It's always <laughs> going to be my favorite song forever. So yeah, I don't know. I want to talk a little bit more about the Catherine Howard song that you mentioned, All You Want to Do, which is so brilliant and I think recasts Catherine Howard, who's sometimes dismissed, even by historians, just as sort of this frivolous girl who flirted and maybe deserved the fate of beheading that she got. But I think it was so powerful the way that you recognize and reckon with the way that she was sexualized at the time, but also the way we sexualize Britney Spears as a 16-year-old. Was it always your intention or reinterpretation to approach the subject matter that way? Or were you surprised the more you delved into the actual history? Like when you were learning about the history, were there aspects of her life that you were surprised to learn about? I think there were definitely aspects of all of their lives that we were surprised to learn about, especially because we didn't know much about them beforehand. <laughs> but I have to say, I think that the idea of like redressing a historical wrong or redressing an imbalance or giving back the microphone to people who have been 
kept out of the spotlight for so long or whatever. That was kind of at the center of the show and the idea of the show before we even decided, you know, before the six wives was even the thing or before it even was about them. It was kind of this thing, as Toby says, we were sort of being like, you know, Toby applied with this criteria of being like, I want to do a group of like women kind of like taking the center of the stage because we were talking so much about marginalization of women's voices at the time. And similarly, both of our degrees, like everything we were writing about was this kind of how to like redress who's been like written out of history and what we think of as this like important narratives or not just history, whose voices we haven't been listening to. So I think that honestly, probably we like came to the subject of it with that intention, without actually having it <laughs> engaged with what the preconceptions were, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Were there any moments where you sort of purposefully recognized like, okay, this may not be quite historically accurate, but we're going to make this tweak to serve the musical as a whole? Or did you try to stick to incredible historical accuracy throughout? I think with Anne Boleyn is the person with whom that's most resonates because a lot of the way we interpreted the Queens was sort of, okay, this is how they've been seen and how can we subvert that? And the kind of conversation around Anne Boleyn is there's just so much hysteria around her, particularly from male historians and people writing narratives about Anne Boleyn. It's like the noise and mythology around her is all to do with her. It's just so inextricable from gendered kind of terms of her being this kind of like witch, seductress. So cunning. Yeah, cunning. And it's like sort mm-hmm. of, so basically we were like looking at that hysteria and we were like, what would be kind of like a funny way to subvert that and kind of like laugh at the intense speculation of her life? And we were like, well, maybe she doesn't mean to be kind of calculating, but everyone's reading that into her behavior. And that was similarly mm-hmm. like a thing where like something like that had happened to me at the time where someone sort of accused me of being really manipulative. And I was like, I, I wish I was that smart. I mm-hmm. have no idea. I'm just living my life sort of thing. But then like historically, like when you actually like read about her, you know, she probably was really cunning. Some might call it charismatic. Some might call it kind of smart and like politically aware. Other people might call it sort of beguiling, like whatever you want to, you know, however you want to frame it. So there's a kind of like thing where we're like, oh, we sort of took one of the most like empowered, smart, <laughs> like women in history and sort of made her this person who's like, oh, I don't know what I'm doing or whatever. <laughs> that maybe is a place where we kind of like prioritize the historiographic discourse as opposed to the actual historical truth that might have been, I mean, whatever that means. And just for listeners, the Anne Boleyn song, the repeated chorus is, sorry, not sorry. What was I meant to do? Just this story of like a girl coming over from France to England and just living her life. And, you know, I think those two ideas can coexist. I like the idea that a musical can bring the conversation about Tudor history to the mainstream. People can sing along to catchy songs and then think like, okay, well, if I want to learn more about the actual history, I can do more than listen to a three and a half minute song. I can like go read a history book. I know that COVID unfortunately put a slight damper on your original Broadway plans. Can you speak as to what that experience was like? Yeah, gosh, it feels a long time ago now. Yeah, March, March 2020, unsurprisingly, (laughs) uh, where we were over here in New York to open the show on Broadway. Yeah, and then it was kind of in the weeks leading up to it where like, COVID was becoming a more persistent news story and people were talking about it and more and acting differently about it. And I think looking back on it, I think I was just putting it to the back of my mind of, oh, it's a thing that will like pass because I was so like tunnel vision about this Broadway open that we had. And then in the few days before, as well, no, like the day before we were meant to open, there was like a news story that came out about an usher who had been working at some theatres, including the Sixth Theatre, who tested positive for COVID. And I was like, wait, it's in New York? It's here? What's going on? Like, it's, it's like on my doorstep? Am I? Do I have it? What's going on? And then that was like 24 hours of like, are we going to open the show? Are we not going to open the show? Like, what's going on? Do we have the powers or not? Like, 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 well, and there's like all these things. And then 
we were just told to like curb out our day as if we were going to open. Meanwhile, like all the producers and all the people were having like a hundred meetings, all the different Broadway leagues and mayors and various things. And then about like an hour and a half before we were meant to go to the red carpet, we found out that New York was shutting down that afternoon and all the theaters were going dark and we weren't going to have our opening night. And then I was a bit like, uh, okay, uh, well, that, that's good to know that we don't have to make that decision that's been made for us. Probably means this <laughs> yeah. COVID thing is very serious. How can I get back home as soon as possible? How can I get my grandparents home who have like flown out to New York? Yeah, it all became a bit into logistical mode of getting back home in case there was going to be, you know, some kind of international lockdown. <laughs> a global pandemic or anything. <laughs> yeah, so... Lucy, is it true that you were in a car hearing about it on the radio as it happened? It's absolutely true. I was in, yeah, I was in a cab going to get my hair done and Governor Cuomo came on the radio saying, and then this was about like two o'clock or one o'clock or something, saying from tomorrow at 5 p.m. all meetings of over 500 people are going to be closed down. And I was like okay, so we're going ahead. Then it was like, except for Broadway, which will shut from 5pm tonight. And I was like, okay. And I actually got out of the cab and then was like, oh, I guess I don't need to get my hair done. Got back into another cab. And went <laughs> <laughs> oh my God. I think also people maybe don't understand, like what was the process like going from Edinburgh Fringe to Broadway, which spoiler alert, you did eventually open. What were sort of the steps involved, you know, for people who don't really know how theatre works behind the scenes. Yeah, I mean, it kind of happened, we had it as this, a student production at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival and like gradually throughout that month, various theatre people from London and different parts of the country were like coming to see the show and then giving us like business cards and being like, let's have coffee and talk. <laughs> about your show they were all from 1920s new york no yeah weird fact that even in london everyone that works in theater as a producer has that accent and always has a cigar in their mouth it's it's a it's a weird kind of like cultural thing but um <laughs> and then we kind of were like okay we're gonna wait till after the fringe because this is all very scary and because we weren't in the same place and so we were just like let's wait until we're back and then a producer called Kenny Wax ended up coming to see the show when we did a home run back at Cambridge. And then he was like, come to my office next week for a meeting. And then he was like, I'm doing a West End show over Christmas. And there's a few Mondays where the show isn't on. I'd like to do like a showcase of your show. And we were like, okay. And then he kind of joined forces with some other producers that we've met. And yeah, so then we did these showcases in this West End theatre. And that was kind of like the biggest jump was going from doing a student show at the Fringe to then a few months later doing this like showcase production at a West End theatre. Yeah. Where which, we like got paid. Where we, like, like, people yeah. were being paid to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Exciting. It was like, it was bizarre. And that's the kind of like the major leap that happened, I guess, because that went well and was well received. The producers were like, let's make an album. We're going to make a, we're going to make a, an album. Um, and it's so gonna then, it's going to be huge. It's going to be huge. It's going to win the Grammy. And then, so we like, we did that. And then that kind of was also us preparing to do a first professional UK tour. And then that ended up going to London for a bit. And then it was well received there. So then it went back to London and kind of set up shop in a theater there called the Arts Theatre. And then from there, we then went to America and started the Chicago production. Then also a UK tour happened. And then it's, then it went out into cruises. Then it went out into Australia. And then it all kind of like gradually led to Broadway. And then it all shut down. Then it all shut down, yeah. <laughs> as, as quickly as it, as it came about. I mentioned a little earlier, both of my sisters are in Chicago. I'm in Los Angeles. They know that I love 
you know, particularly British and French royal history. And they both saw it without me. And I've never been more heartbroken because I had been listening to the album for weeks at that point and was already obsessed with the show. I'm curious, did you make any changes or did people ask you to make any changes for American audiences? So people were like, you know, obviously the question about the form was like, are people going to get it? Are they going to like it? Like what's going on? Like it's the British story. Do people know anything about it? But kind of, as I said before, like we didn't really know anything about the wives or we couldn't really remember what we, what we had previously known. So the whole show is kind of written to sort of tell you what you're quote unquote supposed to already know, but then also then kind of engage with it. So that was kind of one thing where we were like, okay, like it does actually give people the information that they need. And the other thing was when we kind of turned up here, it basically became clear that although, you know, the history is British, the like former pop concerts as sort of as American as can be. And actually, you know, in the UK, it has to be like, you have to be like, how are you doing tonight? And everyone's like, yeah. And it's like, come on, we said, how are you doing? And they're like, oh, okay, we're allowed to do stuff. Whereas here, it's like the lights go down. It's like, it's like (laughs) (laughs) so we're like okay they don't need to help with that um but in terms of like rewrites it was mostly just tiny little things like colloquialisms saying friends instead of mates and there's a sort of reference to gcses which are exams in english that we changed to sort of a reference to pbs you know the things like that that kind of were like small cultural things but i think it's more surprising probably how little has to change than like what does have to change i'm curious structurally because the show is structured where every queen gets her own song, her own sort of moment in the spotlight to rewrite her own history. And then you have one song where you discuss and explain Hans Holbein, the painter, going around and painting the princesses of Europe to present the portraits to Henry VIII. What was the decision like to break form for, I mean, that song is a blast. It's one of my favorite songs in the show. But what was the decision like to say, okay, we're going to have these six songs and also the seventh song. Well, it's because when we were originally planning it, what actually one of like the first ideas from our first meeting was, oh yeah, we should have like Hans Holbein be a character and, and he can have his own like fashion house and he can be this like camp German man. Wouldn't that be so fun? Haha, <laughs> let's drop that down. And then when we were kind of like in the early stages of planning, there were going to be like transitional songs kind of in between their solos kind of like you might have at a pop concert where like there's like an outfit change or going from different sets or whatever and there's like transitional yeah. moments and some more like group numbers and maybe just like some multi-rolling some other characters or maybe they're like backing vocalists who are the various children and they have a number <gasps> about like being kids I don't know but like <laughs> we didn't write that one it sounds so good <laughs> and then we kind of realized that in terms of like you know the time of the show and what we had to do a couple of group numbers to bookend the show and then like each having a solo was kind of like what we had time for. But then it was coming apparent in rehearsals that there was a gap. Something extra was needed. Yeah, we, we kind of always wanted there to be a group number in the middle, like after the three to sort of break up that like monotony of the of the structure. And mm-hmm. we'd also had this kind of like transitional song ideas Holbein that we'd really held on to from the beginning. So whilst we sort of shed those transitional moments, we were like, oh God, we need to write a group number. We were like, well, why don't we have it be the like Hans Holbein one? And then we were like, oh, and then why don't we make it like a statement about like beauty standards and la la la. Okay, Mm -hmm. that'll do. Like, bash it out, right? Half an hour off, forget everyone. Like, do this song. And it's still in, it's now on Broadway, which is embarrassing. (laughs) She like wrote it during the rehearsals and just being like, oh yeah, come on, like, like, what rhymes with like inches and kind of thing. And then now it's being performed on Broadway. So, which is so hilarious. 
I love also the costume choices. I think that the costumes are so distinct. They have nods to period details, but they feel so modern. What was that conversation like developing the costumes? Just super fun conversation with Gabby Slade, our amazing designer, just about what the palette of pop star inspirations were going to be, but also like the ways in which we could get Tudor imagery into them. Because I mean, the whole thing, as we've said, is like hybrid between like Tudor history and like pop concert. One detail that stands out is that Jane Seymour, her dress has sort of boning that looks like the famous Tudor half timber houses. It looks like Tudor housing. I love that. That's my favorite thing as well. And like people don't, you know, people don't pick up on that as much, but I really enjoy that. And also the silhouettes of the portraits, the two Queen's got beheaded, have these like chokers. There's all sorts of like referencey things, but they all mm-hmm. kind of are inspired by, they're not like modeled. Actually, what's interesting is early on, we kind of like the f- initial designs felt more modeled off singular pop stars. And then it sort of felt a little bit like tribute acty kind of vibes. And we were like, that's not, they, they aren't actually you know, Adele or whatever. They're kind of like a palette of them. So Gabby honed down to make them kind of like have elements of different pop star inspirations mm-hmm. to kind of make them, you know, their own identity. I don't know if this is true, but I read, Toby, that you filled in on the West End in the role of Catherine Parr. Is that true? All the rumors are true. (laughs) Yeah, I did. Yeah, it was this time in the summer of 2019 where lots of cast members were like injured and there was like illness going around, even Mm pre-pandemic, can can you believe? And it was getting to this point like a few weeks before where it was like, okay, gosh, like, you know, it's not looking good. So Lucy and and the directing team came up with contingency plans of like, okay, well, like if this people, then we'll do like a version that are like at stalls and we have music stand, like this kind of staging if someone can't move their leg or just like all this stuff. And that like the very bottom of this like giant document was like and if if we really can't find anyone else to fill in and we can't do anything else we'll see if toby's free lol as if ha 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 (laughs) and then like lo and behold a week later i'm like chilling at home i get a phone call from the stage manager being like are you free today and i was like uh yeah i why and she was like um could you come into the west end and play catherine parr for two performances and i was like yeah just casually on the "Ah, west end i know and i was like are we uh, leading up to be like okay you know excited about the potential of it like oh that'd be like a fun day and then i let you put the phone down i was like "Ah!" and then like lucy was like on a plane i was like lucy 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 what and you were like i'm about to take off but you know just like i was like i'm so stressed what do i do and she was like I think the cast are going to be more stressed that like the writers coming in to perform with them. So maybe like, don't make it about you. <laughs> I feel like you've been too generous to me. I think I just went, don't make it about you. Yeah. I don't think I was being so diplomatic. Yeah. Did you know the choreography? Uh-huh. Well, I knew parts of it, but luckily we did a concert performance. But, you know, I do rock a get down dance break. We all like stood in a row and also like Genesis, who's on the album, she filled in for Friend of Cleves and she was amazing. They put us in like adapted band costumes, had these like tight, tight little leather short shorts and just like inappropriate for the first couple of rows. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but then we just like stood in a row and like, I forgot all the words. So thank God we had music stands. <laughs> I was like, in the moment, the lights are on you. It's quite difficult. I was like, like these monologues, it's really tonally hard to, to land. Like, I got, like, I've got to like, you know, change the mood, but also make people laugh gently. How do I do that? That sounds like a stand-up comedian. This, this, this show's really difficult. Wow. Yeah. These performers. These writers really did. Yeah, about these yeah. writers, they like, really know what they're doing, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so it was ultimately quite fun. And it was, what was really fun was that it was a nice chance to like, hang out with the cast, a lot of whom had been in the show for ages and we hadn't seen for a long time. So we were like gallivanting around. So yeah, it's quite fun being part of the gang. One thing I also love about the show is you have an all- female backup band, which I don't know if I've seen on Broadway before. Was that a decision you made from the start? 
yeah, big time. As soon as we were able to have band on stage, when we first did the kind of like production of it that we wanted to do, it was like right at the forefront because, you know, in the same way that yeah, at the time women were sort of underrepresented on stage, female musicians especially was super underrepresented. So we were like, let's make them part of the show and yeah, put them on stage so that you can really see the like talent that's happening. These mm-hmm. kind of like incredible musicians who are owning it. Mm-hmm. Really rocking out as the ladies in waiting, as the show says. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious, how do you think the show has either changed or been part of this conversation of how we teach and talk about history? It's a great question. It's hard for us, I think, to have a perspective on the outside impact of it, because I still am sort of like surprised when people have heard of it or like. So it's kind of hard to gauge, but I was actually at my cousin's wedding over the summer and one of her friends was like a teacher at a school in the like Midlands and was the history teacher and was sort of like talking about how like it really got people kind of engaged with like particularly young people and young girls like engaged with history and like, you know, like getting excited about these like narratives and stuff. So I think in terms of feminist revisionist history like ideas of like redressing historical imbalances i think that those things can be quite like lofty and quite like the preserve of sort of like quote-unquote like high art stuff and actually like i think that what maybe has been kind of cool about six is that it's like brought it into this like commercial space where people are going for a good time and then kind of like come away thinking about that stuff and it being presented in a way that's hardly difficult to understand that's like really like accessible and like makes sort of sense and you don't really have to like know loads about history to kind of engage with it i guess mm, yeah there's been like a few occasions where we've like had feedback from like school trips that have come to see it especially early on and when students are like after the show then like oh i want to like go home and like look up Catherine parr and like look up like more information about like what happened to her and like what she did and what she achieved and or like when people have like, you know, tagged us in like songs that they're writing about like other historical figures in the style of six, like six backing track and kind of like with this intention of being like, you think you understand this thing from this way, but like here's like another way of looking at it. And so I think any person that leaves the show with like inspired to like question things and question different perspectives on things and question how different stories can be told. And like, who and how are you telling them affects that, I think is like, you know, really cool and nice. I love that. That's so well said. Quick question. Has there been any celebrity or like star come to the show or talk about the show that left you fully starstruck? Oh my gosh. Wait. Well, okay. My, my one was when uh, <laughs> Amy Sherman Palladino and Daniel Palladino, the creators of Gilmore Girls Miss Mabel, came <laughs> to see the show and I was sitting next to them. And I was also in the very... Was she wearing a hat? That's Of course she was wearing a hat. That's the first thing that alerted me to her (laughs) presence. It wasn't a top hat, but it was a kind of like cool, like peaked berry thing. I think it was velvet purple. I was like, I'm obsessed. Anyway, but yeah, I was like sitting down and like had to get up to like let them walk past. And I was like, oh my God, that is. And I was was sat next to them for the whole show. And obviously I was just like listening to their (laughs) reactions. That was pretty cool. And then I talked to them at the end and they'd seen it already in London and they'd like come back and they were also coming to the opening, but they decided to like come to a preview. It was wild. So that was cool. But you have mm. a fun one as well. A similar experience, actually. 
in the sentence. Oh, right, yeah. I was oh. thinking that. I was thinking a different one. It's like, oh. because the first one that came to mind was, <laughs> was when I was actually like, my cousin came to visit me in London and she was like, can we go to six? I was like, yeah, we like spent the day having like, you know, like a boozy lunch and then we like went along to go and see six and then she like walked into like our row and like got our tickets, like walked and like sat down and like looked to the left of me and it's RuPaul. <laughs> and I was there like sobering up like, oh my God, I'm like, it's RuPaul, he's watching six, what's going on? And then, like, and that was really wild. Did he seem to have a good time? I think so, yeah. Yeah, and, like, did pictures on stage at the end and, and right. Yeah, really, really sweet. But, yeah, what was really cool was when Tim Minchin went to go see it in Australia. Because he is, oh like, God, yeah. our, like, biggest, or, or, like, one of our biggest, like, writing influences, especially in terms of, like, song structure and, like, comedy and music. He's so, so, so influential on our writing process and truly, truly obsessed with him. And then when we found out that he went to go see it in Australia, it was like, really like, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And he like sent us this email afterwards. That was the loveliest thing that I've ever read in my life. Really like complimenting. Like Like writing. Yeah. And I was like, oh my God, what did it exist? It wasn't for you. And so that that was, (laughs) that was like, that was cool because it was like someone that, you know, really part of that's like, yeah, like, yeah. And like the fabric of what That's the show is. So him liking it was really special. So for people who go to see the show, what's the feeling that you hope they come away with? Ooh. I feel like the ultimate one is being like uplifted and like, I suppose like empowered as well are kind of some of the leading ones because obviously it's like a lot of the story is actually kind of like heavy in the actual like what happened and whatever. It's, it's less sort of being like, oh, I want people to be like, oh, wow, I must go and read loads about these characters, even though, you know, that would be great as well. It's more about being like them sort of seeing the characters realise this kind of state of like empowerment and um, and kind of like taking back control of their own narrative and they've been kind of like written out of it before. And kind of, yeah. So if you, people feeling like uplifted and like positive about smashing the patriarchy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, I'd say like, yeah, like, uplifted and that they've had like a really like fun time um you know especially now more than ever um (laughs) but also i think a few times where we've heard feedback from people that have come and that have said that they felt seen on stage and i think that's really the cockles of my cold cold heart that's wonderful thank you so much so so much for taking the time out i am such a huge fan Uh, Toby Marlowe and Lucy Moss, the co-writers and creators of Six, the musical, now on Broadway, but there's an album that you can stream no matter where in the world you are. Thank you so, so much. Thank Thank you. you. Noble Blood is a production of iHeartRadio and Grim and Mild from Aaron Menke. The show is written and hosted by Dana Schwartz. Executive producers include Aaron Mankey, Alex Williams, and Matt Frederick. The show is produced by Rima Ilkayali and Trevor Young. Noble Blood is on social media at Noble Blood Tales, and you can learn more about the show over at NobleBloodTales.com. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 
yes! We learned how to recycle at the beach. That was great fun. Callie, what do you say? It was. And that time when we did the science experiments and Billy made Raisins dance. That is so cool, Billy. He did. <laughs> Not to mention when a certain Elliot took up swimming classes with Lisa. That was me! <laughs> Bet you can't catch me. I'm going to get you. All this fun and more in our Stories for Kids. Lingo Kids Stories for Kids is now available on Story Button, the kid-friendly device for screenless podcast listening. Listen to Stories for Kids on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Across Generations, where the voices of Black women unite. I'm your host, Tiffany Cross. Tiffany Cross. Join me and be a part of sisterhood, friendship, wisdom, and laughter. We gather a seasoned elder, myself as the middle generation, and a vibrant young soul for engaging intergenerational conversations, prepare to engage or hear perspectives that literally no one else has had. Listen to Across Generations podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 